like that, and, but it's a good, good thing. Um, if you have your Bibles, open those up to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, uh, as we get back into this rhythm um, coming back in, I want to encourage bringing your Bibles to church. Uh, I want to encourage that. If you don't have one today, it's okay. You can follow along on the screen or your devices. Uh, but I want, to, I want us to get into that habit. I think it's good uh, for you to not only bring it, but you also can cross-check the things that I'm saying so you can see that I'm not making things up and that you would be able to yourself look at the Word. And so as we get there, uh, I want to let you know about next week. Next week, we're going to start a, a benchmark series to, to, I believe, that's going to set the trajectory of our church for years to come. We're going to, it's going to be a stake in the ground. Here's where we think God is, what he's teaching us in this season, the past two years. We've done a lot of reflecting as an elder team and Pat. And here's where we've collectively come together and said, we think God's taking the church this way. And so that's what we'll start to unfold next week. And so we want you to be here. It's important. And also, it's a good opportunity to invite guests and friends and churchless Christians and all those things to, to kind of come back in. Great, great time for them to be with us. So as we get there, we are uh, just a little bit inside 36 hours of 2022 in the new year here. And so what that means, most of us have already kind of come up with some kind of idea or kind of made some kind of resolution. Um, they're also known as casual promises that you make to yourself that you have no legal obligation to fulfill. And so uh, I, I've made them, and so there's nothing wrong with them. But here's how that works. Most of the world right now is kind of sitting around looking at the, their, the mirror of their lives, so to speak. And they're, they're evaluating things like their bodies, their budgets, uh, their habits, their health. They kind of look at all those things. They're counting carbs and uh, they start to donate to the local gym and making different uh, decisions to try to improve themselves. Uh, a better version, a new year, new you, right? And so there's nothing wrong with those things. I, I'm, I'm kind of doing the same thing. I've got some resolutions that I'm making. One is to exercise more and also to eat better. If you guys know anything about me, I don't eat good at all. I eat really bad food. So this year I'm going to eat better and I'm going to do that and start that as soon as I eat all the junk food in my house so it doesn't tempt me anymore. So I'll get there probably next week. But, um, but resolutions, they're good. There's nothing inherently sinful in making a resolution. In fact, I would go above and beyond and say that making resolutions, it's a biblical idea. The idea of self-improvement. How can I be a better version of me? I think that's a good thing. However, here's where we have to be very, very careful as we set resolutions. Because resolutions reveal what our greatest pursuit in life is. Our greatest desire, our greatest strife in life is revealed by what we resolve to do. Greatest deficiencies are revealed and our greatest desires in revealed in what we resolve to do. So not saying pack up the Peloton. I'm not saying scrap all the wellness goals. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this, that for the Christian, every year of our entire lives, our greatest resolve is to prioritize Christ above all other things. This is for me today. It is for you if you're a follower of Christ. It's always our greatest resolve. Nothing ever outranks it. No self-improvement of any kind goes above our priority to make Christ more known and in our lives than every single year. All right? So that's the idea I'm going to talk to you about today is how we 
can make Christ more supreme and prioritize him in our life. We say that every week, so that's not anything that's profound. You're like, make Christ a priority. The reason that we're so redundant on that is because that's not the message that you hear when you leave the church. Now, if you listen to sermons and the radio and the fish and those kind of things, you you hear some of that. But by and large, our world does not say make Christ a priority. Right? The, the, we don't live in a Christianized culture. So you, uh, you live in the world, not in the church. And there's also a lot of world in the church, too, if you know what I mean. So we have to be reminded. We need this reminder that Christ is to be a priority in our life. So here's what I think this passage is going to do today. It's Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And what this is going to reveal to us is that Christ is not a part of of our lives. That Christ is not an addendum or an add-on to our lives. We're going to see that Christ is life. It's a big difference. Let's look at it together in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, and malice, and slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul is describing a new community of new people, new selves, and there are two marks of these people that he gives us that, that are kind of birthmarks or uh, 
evidences of this new community, this new self, these new people. Two things he tells us about all of these people, and it's found in verse 4. Here's the first one. When Christ, who is your life, underline that, mark it up, put a note. The first mark of this new community, these new self, these new people, is this. Christ is their life. It's the first one. The second thing is this. It's found in verse 11. Uh, It's really an echo down at the bottom, and it says this. Christ is all and in all. It's easy to read that passage and miss those two statements. Isn't it easy just to kind of, you read through there and it's like all these do's and don'ts and and these behavior modification things. It's easy to get in there and kind of like to miss these two things. Although they're small, they are infinitely important in, in its nature and its importance to us. These two things mark the new people, the new selves, the new community that God is created that is called the church. Two things. We know that Christ is life, and Christ was all in all for Paul. We know that, right? Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. We know that Christ was everything to Paul, not an add-on to Paul's life. He, was, he meant everything. But this passage isn't talking about Paul. This passage is talking about you and me. Everyone who is in Christ. That Christ is our life and that he is our all in all. This is what Christ requires of us and this is also what Christ desires of us. He is life. He's our all in all. So that's the statement that Paul makes here. We have to pause for a minute and we have to understand that Christ did not come to live and die to be a part of our life. He didn't die so we could live duplicitous lives that were one person on Sunday but another person six days a week. He did not live and die so that we could pray a prayer to go to heaven and then live like hell. At no point in the scriptures does Christ ever say that his desire is to be a part of our already awesome lives. As I read that this week, I'm going to make a statement that's going to appear Maybe crash, but I hope I think you'll understand what I'm saying. I can honestly say, stand up here, and my hope and my prayer for myself and for you is that Christ would not be a part of your life. You take that out of context, and you see that quote, you're like, "What? It's got crazy pastor. He doesn't want people have Christ as their life." That's exactly what I mean. Christ has no desire to be a part of our lives, y'all. He wants. All of our lives. He wants to be our all in all, not our part in parts. This is the heart of Christ. Not that he would be an afterthought, but that he would be the most captivating thought of our lives. 
Augustine said this about this idea. Christ is not valued at all if he is not valued above all. Christ is not valued at all if he's not valued above all. You might think that's too strong. You might think, well, that's a little aggressive. I mean, I'm going to church. I'm doing so much better than I was. I'm serving over here. I come to church a little bit. I'm trying to be a better person. I mean, I'm doing good religious things. You're telling me that my part of following Jesus is not good enough? I think you're being a little aggressive here, R.C. Maybe you're getting a little legalistic. Really? He wants all of my life? My all and my all? That is a huge ask, is it not? That's not a light thing. I, I, I feel the weight of that myself when I read that. And so I think before this kind of command for Christ to be our life, to be our, I think we need a why. I, I'm sure going to ask why. Really, Christ, you want all of my life, everything I have? Tell me why you are worthy of my entire life. That's exactly what Paul does in this text. We can find it. We just have to slow down a little bit. And here's what I mean. Paul, in this passage, what he does is he, he's practicing the old uh, identity determines activity principle. And here's what I mean by that. Before... We go do all of these things that are in the text and that we'll get to. Before that, we have to know what our identity is in Christ. You know, the, the world seats, says, going to search yourself. You know, how to, your identity search within you. No, no, that's, that's nonsense. We don't look outside or within ourselves to find out who we are. We look to who God says that we are. And out of this of knowing who God says that we are and what he's done for us and where we stand in Christ, when you understand identity, then comes the activity. That's the basis of Christianity, by the way. It's not activity, do a bunch of things for God, and then he turns you into this. That's not the way it works. Identity determines activity. So I say that if Christ is really going to be my life and he's worthy of that, i got to know some things in this text. Why is he worthy of that? There's five things I see in this passage, that, that really is the motivation. If you're sitting there saying, why does he deserve all of my life? Here they are. The first one is this. It's found in verse 1. It says, if you've been raised with Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus and you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as your salvation, you too have been raised to life in Christ. You need to understand what that means. It means you acknowledge, you know that you were born in death, that you were born dead to God because of your sin. And that through your faith in Christ, you've been raised to a new life in Christ, resurrected. That's important. (laughs) That's very, very important for you to understand. You have new life in Christ. You'll always be alive to God forever and ever and ever. In Christ, there's actually two very important things here that I want you to know. In Christ, your worst 
possible death that you could ever experience is behind you. Your worst possible death you could ever experience is behind you. You can take the worst possible physical death you can imagine on the earth. Asphyxiation, a drowning, a plane crash. Just, I mean, just get into the worst possible. You take that, it is not as worse as you dying in eternal death and hell separated from God. But for those in Christ, that's behind you. You never have to worry about that ever again because you are alive in Christ. The other beautiful thing about that understanding is that your greatest life is in front of you now, not behind you. I think that's another mark of a Christian, by the way. Christians know that the greatest life is in front of them. It's not behind them. So we don't look back and be like, oh, I remember the good old days when I was in high school, man. It was awesome. That's not the greatest days of your life. (laughs) The greatest days of your life, follower of Christ, are in front of you, not behind you. Stop looking back. Look forward. This is the promises of God. The second one is this. He says that we've been forgiven in Christ. Forgiven. We just sung about the forgiveness of God. The Bible says we all have sin. We all need forgiveness. And no other person, place, or thing can offer forgiveness of sins except for Jesus Christ. He paid for sins. He erases sins. I, I think about it, my, if I added up all the sins in my lifetime, I could fill up the ocean with them. But when I put my trust in Christ, he swallows them up. They're gone. They are vanished from his sight forever. White as snow. This is the... This is the motivation of why he deserves to have our entire life. Freely, forever forgiven. Never to be thrown up our faults again in his face. Never, he's never going to pull them all out of the closet and say, all right, you had enough now, here you go. He never does that. Forever forgiven. And because he forgives sins, that's why he is worthy of our life and no one else on the earth is. That's why my kids aren't even worthy of my life. That's why my wife, I love her to death. She's not worthy of my life. She didn't pay for my sins. Christ did. And Christ is my life because of it. And if Christ did forgive you, Christ must be your life as well. Here's the third one we see is that life is hidden in Christ. Says it right there. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. This means that my old life, my old self, has died. Praise God for that, right? Oh, I'm so glad the old me is dead and gone. And that now my life is hidden in Christ. I love the illustration of this idea. What does it mean for your life to be hidden in Christ? If I stand today before a holy God and he sees me, I am doomed. You're doomed. To stand in front of a holy God who says you can't sin one single time, I'm doomed. I don't know about you. I'm condemned. But here's what happens when you trust in Christ. Follow Jesus. He steps in front of you. And therefore, when the Father looks upon me, he doesn't see me because my life is hidden in Christ. He only sees Christ's life, not my own. 
And therefore, he's pleased because my life is hidden in Christ. These are great motivations why he deserves all of us. Here's another one. In verse 4, it says, For those whose Christ is life, we get promised glory in the second coming of Jesus. It says, when Christ is our life, when Jesus Christ returns, we will appear with him in glory. We'll shine like the glory of God. This is a promise, of course, in the future. And here, I think, is the last factor. This is the fifth one. If you're looking for why is Jesus worthy of my entire life, here it is. It's found in verse 12. Put on then as God's Chosen ones, holy and beloved. Followers of Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a follower of Jesus because you are a God-chosen one. This is important. Why did Paul include that in here? What he's trying to explain to us, he's trying to deconstruct self in this passage. He's trying to deconstruct and take away any kind of self-distinctions in us that gives us a reason to boast. Look, look at what he says here in found in verse 11 where he's, he's saying, it's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. He's, he's knocking out every single distinction of self so that no one can boast before God. And the reason we don't boast in our salvation is because God chose us before the foundation of the world. Millions of years ago in eternity past, God had set his affection on us and appointed us to believe. The ultimate causation of our salvation is God's free will and God's choice. That's a humbling doctrine. I'm gonna, we're going to continue to give it because it's supposed to get us to the place where we don't understand, we, we're not ultimately the ones who saved us. It wasn't my will, my, my effort, my decision of all these things. My believing in Jesus was a result of God choosing me first. That's how it happened. Look at this quote by Brennan Manning. He says this, we cannot will ourselves to accept grace. There are no magic words, preset formulas, or rites of passage. Only Jesus Christ sets us free from indecision. The scriptures offer no other basis for conversion than the personal magnetism of the master. When we choose God, just know this, God chose us first. Leave it at that. But I think when you understand that, that is more of a motivation for Christ to be your entire life. Because he doesn't do that with all people. This is a great challenge to us today. For Christ to be our entire life, our all in all. So the rest of the time, we're going to unpack what that looks like. What does a life look like of someone who lives in this new self, new people, new community... What does the life look like when Christ is life? When Christ is all in all, what does our lives look like? Let's look at a few things. First thing is, is when Christ is life, it changes what we seek. It changes what we seek. 
right out of the gate. He says, if you, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. The old self seeks the things below. All right, before your conversion to Christ, you seek the things below. You try to exhaust as much pleasure out of this life, fun, happiness, accumulation of toys, possessions, American dream, house, cars, whatever. You seek everything on the earth. This is what the natural man does. But when you have been raised, if you have been raised in Christ, you set your mind on things that are above. You start to live your life in such a way that you think about the kingdom of God. And it's like a normal a rhythm of your life. You start to think about the things above. Here, here's a good, uh, oh, I think it's good, I don't know if it's an illustration to help us evaluate if we're setting our minds on the things above. Think about the past month of your life. In that past month, what are the things or occurrences, the things that brought you the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, those moments? What are those things? Also think about over the past month, what have been the greatest disappointments and hurts that you've experienced? Now take both of those things. How many of those things had anything to do with the kingdom of God? Anything? It's easy for us to say, greatest moments of my life, all my kids are awesome. They, they got a scholarship and they did this and I'm so proud of them. It was such a great moment. Or even the birth of a baby. Greatest moments of my life. I got a new job. I got an advanced career. Uh, you know, all these things of promotion. I think about, I got, a, I got my new house. I find, you think about all those things? That's not setting your mind on the things above. Setting your mind on the things above you look back and you're like, oh man, I, I shared the gospel with someone. My child gave their life to Christ last week and they're gonna get baptized. I've really seen someone in my life group, their life is just taking off. They're growing in the knowledge of God. They're obeying. They're, they're, it's just a great thing to watch. Those things are setting the mind on the things above. In, in contrary, we look over here, and what are the things that are greatest disappointments in our life? Sickness, death, cancer? Or are we setting our minds on the things above, and the greatest things that are causing us the greatest pain are because my kids are not following Christ, because they are in high-handed rebellion, because I see my loved one, my brother, my sister, my friend, they just keep chasing away from God, they hate God. Those things grieve us the most. This is what it looks like to set our minds on the things above. We live here, and we don't blindly never look at the here, but man, we, we go through this life and we set our minds on kingdom things. When Christ is life, we set our mind on the things above. Here's the second one. When Christ is life, it changes how we fight. The old self fought God and loved sin. The new self fights sin and loves God. The old self, we, God, we, didn't, we fought him at every moment. He's pressing in on my awesome life. Can you just kind of stay away from me, God? You want too much of me. 
Oh, you require way too much. Fight, 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 fight. Sin, love, 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 love. I want to do these things. But the, but the new self fights sin and loves God. This is what he says here in verse 5. That's what he's talking about. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul, again, is describing the new community, the new people who have new life, whose Christ is life for them, and they fight sin. They have a new disposition towards sin. And I think when it comes to some of those he lists there, they're they're not inclusive of all sins, of course, but I think when he talks about here, we have to be ready as Christians to set boundaries that are regarded as ridiculous by our culture. I think it's one of the ways that we prove that we are a peculiar people. We have to set those boundaries. So when the, when the world is cohabitating and practicing sexual morality and flaunting it and celebrating it, we have to be different. It's how we show that Christ is life, that we are countercultural people. I think when we understand that Christ is life, I think we also understand that Christ did not just die for our sin, but that he died so that we'd stop sinning, at least to empower us to stop sinning. This is what it's understanding to fight sin in our life. Tony Ranke said this, Every sight of Christ we take is an attack on every delight of sin left in our hearts. We will not be sinless, but we should sin less. So the, the, the application here is this. Where in your life are you training sin, practicing habitual sin, trying to hide it from just getting busted, uh, habitual, unrepentant sin? Where do you find yourself in those areas? Are you trying to coddle your sin? If Christ is your life, you'll put a bullet in that thing. You'll stop trying to play games with sin and you'll put it to death and whatever that is in our life secret or public let's move on to this next piece here when christ is life it changes our community when christ is life it changes our community we all have community outside of church community is not a christian idea we we all have community you have community at your schools um, in a teacher's cohort or at your jobs or sports, hobbies. You, we all have a lot of communities. Those are good things to have. But when Christ is life, when he is our all in all, this community takes a priority over all other communities. Listen to the charge he gives in verse 12 through 14. He tells us how to live like that together. The church put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience Bearing with one another and forgiving one another as you have been forgiven. When Christ is life and Christ is all, this is the way that we will live with one another. Now here, if you look at these things, these these charges, all these imperatives to do, it is not easy to live out these precious realities in isolation. Like, this by definition 
All these things cannot occur if we're disconnected from one another. Let me put it this way. I could come here every single Sunday an entire year, 52 Sundays, and I could sit in the same seat for 52 Sundays, and I could shake hands with everyone in the room and be so welcoming. And if I leave here and I don't know anybody, I don't have life with anybody, I don't talk to anybody through the week, I'm not gathering with anybody, Christ is really not my life. I can't do all of these things unless I'm connected to a group of people. Life groups and discipleship groups is how you do that at the church. It's it's important to do all these things. We can't do these things if we only attend church. We have to be in life groups. If Christ is your life, listen, church, you got to get in a group. You have to get in a group of people. And I, I look out and like, I know I, we're small enough church. I, I can look around and I kind of know who's in groups or not. I don't know if you knew that or not. I can look out and I know who's in groups and who's not in groups. Get in a group. You know who you are. I know who you are. I want you to have people to do life with. You need them. This whole passage screams that God set apart and chose a community of people, not a bunch of individual Christians to roam around and do whatever they want to. Get into a group. Use the card to do that. And let me give you a heads up. When you do this, when you, get, you start to know people at the church and they start to know you, here's what's going to happen. It's going to get messy. It's going to get hard. That's why Paul said that we need to be able to bear with one another. You know what bear means? Endure. (laughs) It means when you start to really play out this Christ is life in the community, we're going to have to endure each other. You're going to have to endure me. I'm going to have to endure you. It's going to be difficult at times. We will need to forgive one another. If, if you're never in any community of this church, you don't need to extend forgiveness because you don't know anybody. Therefore, nobody can, can wrong you and you can't, they can't wrong you. But man, when you get in the community though, you better get ready because you're going to need to practice forgiveness. You're going to need forgiveness from other people. And that's the point of this text here. He's saying that we need to be in life groups with one another. If you're not in a group, please, If you have ears, please do it. It's a good, good thing. There's a lot of loving people in this church that are ready for you. Uh, Here's the next one. When Christ is your life, you make Scripture a commitment. This is in verse 10 and 16. Let me show you. Verse 10, Paul says, You have put on the new self, which is being renewed. How is the new self being renewed? In knowledge. How are we renewed in knowledge? Only by the book. Paul said to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That means like this. By studying the book. Here's the next thing he said in verse 16. Go down. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So people who their life is Christ are committed to the scriptures. They're committed to the scriptures. Uh, This is a great opportunity to plug the reading plan again. Let me pause. Let's go to the reading plan up on the 
text. Y'all still got that? There you go. Uh, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now. Uh, but this is a, let me say this. This is not a, hey, consider doing this and y'all go pray about that. That's not what this is. Sometimes that's what we say. If you're a covenant member at this church, this is what we're going to do. I'm not getting legalistic and saying you're not saved if you don't do the reading plan. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying this is something we're called to do. If Christ is our life, we will commit to the scriptures. And so the way that this plan works is it's a 265-day reading plan. We'll go through it an entire year, but there's grace days built in there. It's five days of reading. It's a lot different than last year's reading plan. If you did that, it had some uh, obstacles and it was a little difficult in some moments. But this one is just a straight New Testament reading through. Uh, it's something we want to be all doing individually. Also in your groups, if you're in a life group, adult life group or discipleship group, everyone, we want them going through this reading plan collectively. That's what we want to do. So download that thing on the website. You can go to the app to download it. Or uh, for you old schoolers, that's me, I'm old schooler, there's printed out copies in the connect area out, out front. You just grab one of those and just check off the box and kind of keep it in your Bible. I just, I like doing that, but a lot of ways you can do that. But we are inviting you, please, encouraging you, be a part of this Bible reading plan because we're showing God that Christ is our life when we do that. Above all things, Christ is our life. Here's the next one. When Christ is life, corporate worship is a priority. Verse 16, after he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you, he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. Now, we know that we can sing psalms and songs and spiritual songs in our cars, of course, and we probably should do. That's a good thing to do. But here in context of the scripture, Paul is referring to corporate worship. When the body gathers together to sing psalms and spiritual songs. People whose life is Christ, that Christ is life, they commit to corporately gathering. Commit yourself to the corporate gathering. Here's another one. In Christ's life, it changes all of life. So this is really a one statement that Paul makes to really summarize all of the ones here in the text. He says it in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says, when Christ is life, it changes all of life. Uh, there's a guy named Jared Wilson who uh, he writes for Gospel Coalition, and he said this quote, it's all of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. I hope that you have seen all of what God requires of us in Christ Jesus. That you have seen reason, motivation to look at our lives today and see if there's any area in our lives where we are not putting Christ first above all things. That's everybody, by the way. When I read a text like that and it says, whatever you do in word or deed, everything in the name of the Lord, I mean, the reality of that 
is I'm not doing that today, neither are you. But that doesn't change the command. We still pursue to do everything in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to end with this piece, with an evangelistic piece here. Because if at this point, if we just kind of stop, everything's for us. We're a holy huddle, a church, just protect yourself and just live a certain way. And there's no missional component. We reach no one. But the idea here is that if we are a people who live as if Christ is life, the world will notice. No one will notice if Jesus is a part of your life. That doesn't move anyone. The fact that we go to church on Sunday, that doesn't motivate anyone. That is, that's great. I just said corporate worship's amazing. But that doesn't motivate anyone if you just go to church on Sunday. The world does not look upon people whom Christ is a part of their life and see anything attractional in that. But you start to live this way, we start to live this way as if Christ is life, we will become attractive to the world. Now, some will repel, of course, against us because not everybody follows Jesus. But those whom God has chosen and set aside will look upon our lives and say, hey, there's something different about these people. They're way different than everybody. They're really into this Jesus thing. And then, wow, we start to reach the nations. We start to reach our family members. We start to reach our neighbors and the nations when Christ is life. Let me, let me, let me give a few bullet things here in regards to asking you a couple questions. When Christ is your life, he's in all domains of your life. That means Christ in your calendar. You look at your calendar of the week and is it just full of errands and hobbies and busy things, but there's no Christ in it? Man, is Christ your life? Christ in your money means that you freely give the tithe and above and beyond the generosity of God. That's what it means for Christ to be in your life. You give. Christ in your marriage. It's when you give your spouse forgiveness. Over and over and over again, you extend to them the same forgiveness that Christ has given to you. When Christ is in your singleness and you're lonely and you don't have the spouse that everybody else has, Christ is still your life. And one day in future glory, he'll drown out all of your loneliness. It'll all be evaporated forever and ever. Christ in my social media, what's that look like? It's, it's by and large looking at our social media, which can be a tool used for God. Looking at our social media and asking ourselves, does this tool make it known that Christ is my life? That's, a, that's some homework for you guys to do today. I'm not going to go policing social media, but... When you look at your social media, it either is going to be used to make Christ your life or it's dominated by you and the things that you do and your kids and your activities. And it's just noticeably absent 
is Christ from your social media. You see, if he has nothing to do with your social media, then he's really not your life, right? He's a part of your life, but he's not all of your life. He has to get into every single domain, y'all. Every domain. Nothing untouched. Christ in our minds, our relationships, in our words, everything. He wants all of us. As we close today, the band's going to come out. I want to read to you a quote from the famous Christian missionary, St. Patrick. St. Patrick is known for a heck of a lot more than a reason for you to wear green and go get a drink on March the 17th. All right? He is a famous Christian missionary captured by Irish pirates. He was thrown in jail, imprisoned, tortured. He did eventually escape. And upon his escape, he was converted, came to Christ, went back to Ireland where he was held captive, went to the king, preached the gospel to the king, converted the king, baptized the king. He began to Christianize, help Christianize Ireland. And one of the things about St. Patrick was is that the banner of his life was Christ is life. He lived his entire life as if Christ was his life. And so what he did is he pinned something called St. Patrick's Breastplate. And the idea was of it, he, upon the, every soldier in Ireland, this uh, St. Patrick's Breastplate was etched into the words on every single soldier before they go out and fight. And so I'm going to read this, and my hope is this, that we as Christian soldiers, uh, that these words would be etched on our hearts as well. He says this, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I rise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Christ was his life, his all in all. A reminder here as we close out. In verse 4, when it said, when Christ appears in his second coming, his return, it says on that day that for those whom Christ is life, their treasure, Christ is their redeemer, Christ is their completer, for those people, they are promised to be lifted up in glory with Jesus, but it's just the ones whom Christ is all. So I, I do pray, as I said this earlier, I pray that Christ is no longer a part of anybody's life in here. I pray that we would do some soul searching today to find out what parts and areas of our life are we letting him be a part of our life and not all of our life. Because this is an invitation, not to obedience only, but it's an invitation to life. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. And you have called us to an incredible high challenge, high calling. To give the entirety of our lives to Christ. God, you didn't lower the bar. Praise God you didn't. 
God, as you set that bar, we, we know that we're going to need grace here because we know that we do not truly and fully show that to you every day of our life. So God, give us grace. Give us your mercy. But God, I pray that we don't presume upon that grace, that we are convicted by our sin, but then we would turn to you and give all of ourselves unto you because you are so worthy. You gave all of your body and all of your blood and all of your life for us. Thank you, Jesus. In his name we pray.